seated. Good morning. Uh, we have some neat things that are going to be happening today. The first is that uh, Bible drill will be at 4 o'clock. And um, I would encourage you to, um, if you've got kids or if there's kids in your neighborhood, you can snatch them up and bring them here. I'm just kidding about that. Uh, but um, if you have kids, bring them here. It's a great uh, time of fellowship. Uh, the competition part is optional. Uh, the main part is uh, the learning about God's Word, uh, how it's divided up, um, Old Testament, New Testament, key passages, uh, thinking about um, uh, key passages that provide doctrinal truths uh, that are very, very helpful. So I would encourage you, um, if you have kids, to uh, be planning on being here at 4 o'clock, and then at 4.30 it's the it's going to dismiss, and the kids are going to do their thing. Uh, at uh, 5.15, so tonight we'll have um, my parents who are missionaries to Spain. They'll be giving a, a presentation about the, their ministry there. And uh, I, I think it'll just be a lot better to hear about missions if we have a cookie in hand. So if you could come at 5.15 to drop off some cookies, and uh, we'll have coffee. Uh, Fred will have coffee, right? We'll have coffee, and um, we'll have cookies, and it's going, to be, it's going to be great. I would uh, encourage you to do that. And since they're missionaries to Spain, I would uh, encourage you to think about some type of dessert that's Spanish. And if you need to know how to make a dessert Spanish, wherever it says uh, butter, you take out the butter and you put olive oil in its place, and uh, voila, it's a, it's, it's a Spanish dessert. Uh, go ahead and, and make sure you put your name by it, and uh, you bring that in, and you tell us that you did that, and uh, stand proud by it, and it'll be a Spanish dessert. Uh, before we get into the sermon, I'm going to invite my dad to come up and share a little bit about uh, their ministry, uh, so that uh, you can see what to anticipate this, uh, this evening. Good morning. Oh, that's alive. Uh, thank you, Pastor, Hijo, Son, Son, Pastor, whatever works better for you. Um, this evening, uh, we'll be sharing the ministry that the Lord has allowed us to be a part of by His grace and mercy in Spain. When we went to Venezuela first, uh, the 28th of April, 1981, uh, Daniel was three months old and in my wife's hands, uh, arms, and we landed there in Venezuela, and he, we got the plane, and there was a good group of people to receive us. And I thought that when we arrived to Spain, we were coming to a very dark, spiritually dark country. Well, I was wrong. Because now we've been in Spain 12 years, and that is a very spiritually dark country. And what makes it spiritually dark is the religious deception that is going on there. Very hard. One of the strongest deceptions that exist in the world is religion. And we don't preach. We don't share religion. We share someone who gives life, forgiveness of sin, and a changed life. 
because it's a person, not a religion. And so we'd like to invite you to come and hear about that. Do you know how long it takes for a seed to be planted and become a plant and give off tomatoes, a tomato plant? It takes between 60 and 100 days, depending on the location, depending on the land, depending on the climate. 60 to 100 days you can have tomatoes. How many of you know what a yucca is? The yucca plant. It's very delicious. We learned to like it and eat it in Venezuela and include it in our soups. I was going to say sopa. Soups and other things that are uh, very delicious. Well, a yucca plant from seed to fruit takes anywhere from three to five years. Three to five years. We'll be showing you a yucca plant tonight. Her name is Evelyn. And how God started a work in her three years ago, and she was just recently baptized the first Sunday of August last month. It's a beautiful story. But it has to do with planting and watering. And the message also will include how you and I should all be involved. We should all be involved in that planting and watering. And no one is more important than the other. Because it is God who will give the increase. So I invite you to come back with your cookies, Spanish cookies. And then uh, enjoy the service tonight as we share God's word and share with you how God is working in Spain. Thank you, Pastor. The, the, the plant uh, is, is metaphorical, just, just in case you guys didn't get that. That is not an actual plant that will be brought tonight. Just thought I'd be clear about that. Uh, I just want to be talking about a person. Okay, good. Uh, we are in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 7. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring, uh, referring to this when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to, spe uh, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you, Father, that um, it describes a, a new administration, a new dispensation. One that uh, Paul felt he was a mere servant of. Father, I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds. 
strengthen our wills, transform us that we will see ourselves as ministers, as deacons of this new administration, of this new dispensation. Father, we know that that will change us and be, make us more like Christ and less like ourselves. And I pray that that work will happen in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here that has not accepted Christ as their Savior, they, they cannot even begin to participate in this plan. And I pray that your Spirit would convict them and show them their need of a Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. We, we tend to like things that are authentic, don't we? We like things that are authentic. We like things that are, um, that are real. In fact, we'll, we'll pay extra money to get a genuine Toyota part into our car rather than the, the off-brand. And, and we'll go and we'll buy the name-brand Oreos and pay the whatever much more rather than getting the, the off-brand Oreos. It's just uh, something that we think that there is better quality, better taste. Yeah, in fact, if you were to put the two cookies and say, these are Oreos and these are imitation Oreos, mm, these taste so much better. You know, uh, we, we just anticipate that uh, authentic is better. We'll pay more money for authentic. Uh, we will go and buy the Ray-Ban sunglasses because... Uh, they, they, they're not, the paint's not going to fade off. It's not going to be chipping off while you're wearing them. Uh, we'll buy the Ray-Ban sunglasses because the, the, the glasses, the lens won't be just falling out while you're out at the beach or whatever. We'll pay more for authentic because we expect that being authentic is better. It's so much better, we think. Uh, Paul is going to present here uh, in this text uh, some truths some truths about um, what it is to be an authentic Christian, what it looks like to be authentic. Now, chapter 3 comes at the heels, obviously, this is really profound, of chapter 2, which uh, uh, Paul has been developing this whole idea of, of unity. There's two main themes in the letter to the Ephesians, and that is uh, unity and love. And he's been developing this. And in chapter 2, he really focused on this unity between God the Father. And this is uh, made possible through Jesus Christ, where he has uh, accomplished the fact that while we were sinners, separate from God, uh, totally isolated from God, not a thing in the world that we could do to get close to God, uh, Jesus Christ died for us and redeemed us. And uh, by faith, we can have a relationship with, with God. Uh, that brings us into unity with him. That brings us into proximity, into relationship with, with God. Uh, on our own, there's nothing we can do to have that relationship. There's nothing we can do to uh, somehow sweeten the deal that he would want to have us except through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. In, in fact, if a person thought, well, I'm going to attend church services or I'm going to do good works or I'm going to do other things and somehow close that gap and maybe show God the value that I have as a good person, all it will do is isolate you further because your good works are nothing more than dirty, filthy rags. And, and, and God does not accept it. The only way is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it requires the putting faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death in your place, him taking your guilt, 
in you accepting his righteousness. But this unity doesn't just stop between God and man. It extends itself in this new creature that's being formed where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, but there, there is one. This, this aspect of unity is very, very important. Uh, that uh, Of course, it's talking about the body of Christ, and it's talking about in the body of Christ there's a unity, but what is true of the body of Christ should be true of the local church. It'd be incongruent to think that uh, there's, there's supposed to be unity in the body of Christ, but in a local church there's all types of divisions. That in the body of Christ there is being brought together through Christ, under the headship of Christ, but in the church there's all types of schisms. That, that would be incongruent to think. Now as we look at this, and he brings in this aspect of unity, he, he moves into chapter 3, and uh, after verse 1 he kind of digresses a little bit, uh, changes uh, gears a little bit, but what we're going to be looking at today is we need to live in obedience to the revelation of God as a faithful servant. We're to live in obedience to the revelation of God as a faithful servant. See, it's, um, it, it, what happens many times is that we can fall into a, a trap of thinking that uh, having a relationship with God is just a mere intellectual pursuit that it has no effect on how I live, that it has no impact on what I do, how I treat one another. What this text is going to show us is that we are to live in obedience to what God has revealed as a faithful servant. Now, it might seem kind of strange to be talking about servant when we've been hearing about all these blessings, but we'll see in this text that we're to be living as a faithful servant, or we could even say, as a faithful prisoner. The first thing that we're going to look at is to live in obedience for the sake of others. And we see that in verse 1. Live in obedience for the sake of others. Uh, Paul writes, for this reason, which is a continuation of chapter 2, 11 through 22. He is, he is going to continue his argument. For this reason, based on what has already been said, I'm going to say this. And he says, I, Paul, he reminds them of who is writing. He had said it in, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and the Apostle Jesus Christ, but he reiterates it again to show that uh, it's him, him who, who at the end of his second missionary journey stopped in and, um, and met with them and, and talked with them. He stayed there only for a short amount of time, but then on his third missionary journey, ends up going back up and spending over two years with them, teaching and admonishing them. Him, Paul, who had been on two different missionary trips, had stopped in with them. He's the one that's writing. He identifies himself personally. And he, the way he identifies is kind of interesting because it says the prisoner of Christ Jesus. The prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, if we were to look at the most common way of understanding that, we would understand that uh, Paul is currently imprisoned in Rome. And being imprisoned in Rome, he is writing to them. He's saying, I am, I'm a prisoner, I'm, I'm incarcerated right now, and that would be the, the easiest way of understanding this. This word prisoner doesn't occur a whole lot of times in the New Testament, about 16 times. And in Acts chapter 16, 25 through 27, uh, we see where uh, Paul and Silas, they're in Philippi, and uh, 
there's this earthquake, and the jailer thinks that the prisoners have escaped. Think about Paul and Silas and the other there. So Paul has been identified at other times by other people as being a prisoner. Paul identifies himself five times as a prisoner. Ephesians 3.1, the text that we're looking at. Ephesians 4.1. 2 Timothy 1.8, Philemon 1, and verse 9. He identifies himself as a prisoner. Now, we're probably thinking, you know, is there not a better role model than, than a prisoner that we could be reading about? You know, shouldn't there be somebody else who hasn't been incarcerated that we should be reading? Uh, who is he a prisoner of? What, what is it communicating? Well, as it says here in English, it says, uh, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. The of almost seems like a, a preposition, right? Uh, what does this communicate? It's a, it's a genitive. What, what does this genitive uh, communicate? Well, in one sense, it communicates uh, a certain possessiveness. A certain possessiveness. For example, if we were to, to talk about uh, Chris's car, we would say that the car belongs to Chris. I mean, that, that, would, that would be, it's a possessive. And this, the genitive here, is, is a possessive. It's, he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus or Christ Jesus' prisoner. That S at the end makes it complicated. Uh, he belongs to Christ. But it also has an effect of, of limiting. The genitive has an effect of limiting. As opposed to uncategorized as being a, a, a prisoner of, of whomever, uh, or being a prisoner of Rome, it limits it and puts it into a certain limit of category. He is the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Even though he's in a prison in Rome, even though he's under Roman authority, he looks past all that and sees that it is Christ who he is imprisoned for. Also gives a kind. Gives a type of kind. What do I mean by kind? Uh, well, uh, we were, uh, my wife and I, we were visiting churches in, uh, in Utah, and um, we were at a pastor's home. He wanted to uh, serve us lunch, and he kept on staring, us, staring at us as we were eating. And finally, he asked us if we liked the meat. You know, that's <laughs> kind of always a, a, a thing that you're like, why are you asking about the meat? And then you kind of, you know, wonder, like, should I have been eating the meat, you know? Uh, you don't know what they're going to say after that type of thing. Um, I said, uh, what type of meat is it? And he said that the type of meat was elk. It was meat of an elk. It gave the kind of meat that it was. So it wasn't something all crazy. But it was the kind of meat. What is it saying here about this statement about Paul? Paul is not a prisoner in general, uncategorized, but specifically of Christ, the anointed King Son of God. That's how he saw himself. He looked past the Roman guard. He looked past the Roman authority that held him there. He looked past his circumstance, and he saw that he was a prisoner of Christ. That's who ultimately had him there. While Paul was under Roman guard, he knew that God was in control of all these circumstances in his life. Now why? Why is he a prisoner of Christ? 
Well, as it says here, for the sake of, which is on behalf of, for this, which in, indicates uh, an activity or an event in, uh, in someone's uh, best interest. In other words, he is in this situation because it is for the best interest of whom? Of you. In other words, he's not doing this because somehow he's going to get extra brownie points or because it's, it's going to make him look really cool that he did time in prison. But he is doing this. He is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of, for their sake, of you Gentiles. That's how he is. He's living for them. He is suffering for them. He's in this situation because of them, on behalf of them, for their best interest. Now, as we look at this, or to live in obedience for the sake of others, we have to ask ourselves, are we prisoners or are we citizens? Are we prisoners or are we citizens? Uh, as we were looking at this text, since chapter 1, Paul has been going into a whole bunch of blessings that we have in Christ. Uh, he predestined us. He adopted us. He elected those who were Saved, he sealed with the Holy Spirit. Christ has redeemed with his blood. Uh, the, the saved are made into a new creature. These are all blessings. We're co-heirs with Christ, co-citizens with the saints. These are truths. But now Paul says that he is a prisoner, which a prisoner and citizen don't seem to go equal, right? It's not like we think of... Uh, yay, I'm a prisoner, you know, on the same level of, yay, I got my citizenship papers, right? Uh, usually people don't, don't uh, celebrate the two. I've seen pictures of people who have become citizens of a country and, and they're very happy. I've never seen where someone's like, yay, I'm a prisoner! So how are these things to be incongruent, the one with the other? How are we to understand it? Well, his citizenship and the blessings that are in God are irrevocable. They don't change. These are gifts that God has given for those whom he elected and predestined. But he is a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. He has placed himself in this position in relation to Christ on behalf of or for the interest of other people, for these Gentiles. Now we have to ask ourselves, are you a prisoner of your circumstances or of Jesus Christ? Are you a prisoner of your circumstances or of Jesus Christ? In other words, do you live in surrender to Christ for others, or do you expect others to surrender their desires for your will? Well, only two choices that you can have. See, many times there are individuals who constantly live only looking at their circumstances. That's all they do. They would be here, but they don't have this education. And they would be this, but they don't have this uh, situation that would... Uh, everything is their circumstances. And they usually go around very gloomy because they're always looking at their circumstances. Their circumstances dictate where they're at. And therefore, they feel the desire, the necessity to manipulate and to talk and to do, to see if somehow they can change their circumstances so that they can get a little bit better to a place where they can be happy. 
They want to be happy. But they can't be happy because of their circumstances. So they must manipulate and change and do and, until they get everything just right. But our hearts, as John Calvin said, constantly manufactures idols. So it's never going to be satisfying. <laughs> Even if you got everybody to cooperate with you and do exactly as you wanted, oh, you would hate it. Two seconds after that. Two seconds after, you would hate it because there would be something else that you would want. Do you live in surrender to Christ for others? Belonging to Christ for others, if we were to look at that, belonging to Christ for others, being a prisoner of Christ limits to whom Paul was related. But he did that for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, what, what does this look like? It looks like God's glory guiding your decisions. God's glory guiding your decisions. You give of yourself for the benefit of others. Imagine, Paul was in Jerusalem after he got saved, after he came back from the desert. He's in Jerusalem, and, and they don't like him, and so he gets snuck out of the city because there were some people thinking about killing him. And, and off he goes, and he's there, and Tarsus, and he, he's just there, and uh, everything is good. You don't hear about any type of persecution against him. N nobody is going to look for him. No one's going after him. You don't hear of any disruptions, anything going on. He's, everything is just quiet until one good day, Barnabas comes knocking on his door. And he says, hey, there's a work being done in Antioch. Come on, we need your help. And he goes. And after a year, that church decides to lay hands on him and, and send him out. After that, you see a constant report of hardship coming into his life. I mean, one right after the other. Blessings where he's preaching and people get saved, and then they stone him and take him out of the city. Preaching and people get saved, and he gets incarcerated. Preaching and people get saved, and he gets run out of the city. Over and over and over again. And if you read to the end of, the, of Acts, you see he gets shipwrecked, he gets ended up in Rome. I mean, it's just one thing after another. He could have just stayed home. He could have just been comfortable there. Maybe send out a, a tweet every once in a while. Love God. Hashtag John 3.16. Boom. Goes out to the masses. He did his part. Praise the Lord. But instead, he gave himself by going. He, he didn't stay. It was in pursuit of having other people know about God. See, you can either live for yourself or you can live for God. But if you live for God, it's going to require everything that you have. Because it involves you taking up your cross and following after Him. The cross-centered life is a life of danger, of humility, of pain, of loving for others, and most of us, we don't want to do that. We're honest. We said, no, I, I'm going to serve the Lord right here where I'm at. It's safe. It's comfortable. The AC's on. We're good. 
Are we prisoners of Christ for others? Or are we really just serving ourselves? Now, we're to live in obedience for the sake of others. It's an impact where as we have this unity with the Father and it brings a unity with one another, it is in obedience to living for other people, but we are to also live in obedience if you are saved. If you are saved. Now, there's the, uh, Paul, <laughs> he's writing, and he, he kind of switches gears all of a sudden. He doesn't pick up his, his uh, argument until verse 14. He just kind of like stops right there, and he introduces a conditional sentence. If you're into it, it's a first-class conditional sentence uh, where it, it assumes a truth, but not necessarily. There's an amount of doubt still present in this. It's a conditional. It means it, it could be true in a lot of cases, but there is a doubt that it might not be true. And that if indeed you have heard. Now, the most normal way of understanding the word heard is uh, where the ears uh, perceive sound. That's, that's hearing. But it doesn't really make sense when he's talking about if you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. There's another meaning where hearing has the idea of understanding a message, to understand, to comprehend. In, in that as you hear something, you understand the implications of it, and then you live that out. You live that out for other people. For example, you can see this in Acts chapter uh, 22, verse 9. Uh, you remember that Paul is with his companions and they're on their road to Damascus and Jesus appears to him. And it says in Acts 22, verse 9, uh, and those who were with me saw the light, uh, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. That understand is our, is our same word to hear. They're not comprehending. It's not a thing that their ears aren't working, but they're not comprehending. Acts chapter 26, verse 14, Paul is also giving another uh, instance of his testimony. And he says, And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, where he heard, it's not just that sound uh, came to his ears and he perceived the sound. Rather, it's that he understood because it had a tremendous impact. He was going to persecute Christians, to kill Christians. He, he was going to see how he could uh, put them in jail. And something happened where he heard and it transformed his whole agenda. He goes to Damascus not to find Christians, but to become part of them. It, it's a hearing that has implications for doing, of changing not just intellectual pursuit. It has something that's doable, action plan. Now, there's another place where this is also used in the sense of, of hearing but understanding. Uh, Paul had the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And uh, it, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2, I think I have that spiritual gift too. Maybe not as good as Paul, but I, I think uh, we both share that spiritual gift. He's writing about tongues, and he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he's looking specifically about tongues. 
And he says, uh, for, for those who speak in tongues do not speak to men, but to God. You know, there's, there's the sarcasm. <laughs> uh, nobody understands what you're saying. Uh, for one, uh, for no one understands, he says. That understands is our same word for hearing. But in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. Uh, I think Paul was, was rather sarcastic there. Uh, this has an aspect of hearing information and impacting you to live differently, to do something differently. It's never just information that gathers up there and then you leave the same. And that's the sad thing, is that today there are people hearing and they will leave exactly as they came in. They'll go to lunch and there will be no change. They've only, information has come to their ears, but they don't understand it. And they'll live exactly as they lived before coming here. Paul says, if, if, if indeed you have heard, heard of what? The stewardship. Uh, this word stewardship is a, a, a word that means a management plan or a program or dispensation, if you like that word. It's a responsibility of a management, managing a household or directing an office. It has that idea. It's the uh, idea where a plan has been revealed and there are stewards, there are individuals who are to take that plan and obey it and work it out. Now, this, uh, this plan, there is blessing if you follow it and there is consequence if you do not. Uh, one of the best places where we can see this kind of uh, stewardship is found in Luke chapter 16, 1 through 13. Uh, in that verse, you see that there is a, an owner of a household, and he has a slave. He has a steward, and that steward, he has told him to manage his things, and he has the responsibility to manage these things. Unfortunately, instead of managing, he, uh, he, he takes advantage of, of him, and um, the, the, the guy calls him. He, he calls him and, and tells him, hey, you should have not have been doing that. And so he's going to settle accounts with him. In that settling of accounts, Jesus concludes what he is saying to this uh, about this steward in Luke 16, 10 through 13. In, in Luke 16, 10 through 13, it says, He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, entrust the riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? Uh, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will devote to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This stewardship places you under an owner, an owner who has revealed a truth to you, and you have the responsibility to obey. As it says in Luke, you can't serve two masters. Paul writes in Ephesians, uh, he is a, uh, you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. You're either going to be under this administration, or you're going to be serving self. But there's not a way to marry the two together. This idea of an administration or a management or a dispensation 
is also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.4, where he says, uh, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration or dispensation or management of God, which is by faith. We can either live for myths and endless genealogies, or we can live to further the administration, the dispensation, which comes by uh, faith. Now, what is this administration? Uh, it says there in verse uh, 2, the stewardship of God's grace, which has been given to me for you. That's an interesting thing. God's grace was given to Paul so that he could just store it up for himself and feel all cozy and nice. On a cold winter day, he could just wrap himself in God's grace and be like, hot dog. Is that what the verse says? It was given to him for the Ephesians. His receiving the grace was not for himself alone, but it was to be given out. And further on, he gives in verse 7 that he's a, he's a diakonos, he's a servant of this dispensation to be giving it out. He was given this not for self, but to give to others. Well, maybe that was just Paul's responsibility. Obviously, that couldn't be for us. But he's writing to the church, and he's telling them about this, that if you participate in this, he says in verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known, it wasn't known before. They lived under the law. It was a dispensation of grace, but in the law. But now, what, what do we see? Now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in spirit. Uh, to be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. How is it that people get to that? It's through the gospel. Through, through understanding, first of all, the bad news. That you are a sinner, and it separates you from God. And there's not a thing you can do to get close to God. But God, in his grace and mercy, sent his son to die on the cross. And it's not about having intellectual information about Christ coming or Christ dying on the cross. The demons know about that, but they're not saved. It's about accepting in faith that his death was in your place. That he took your sin and offers you his righteousness so that you can have peace with God. People have lots of information about this, and they're lost. It's not about having information. It's about believing in it for yourself. As we look at this, uh, we see that Paul writes and tells them about this dispensation. He says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. A minister or a servant. He was made a servant to give this out, which was given to me according to the working of his power. A servant doesn't make the plan. A servant doesn't have to worry about if the plan is good. The servant only has to worry about obeying. That's it. 
You don't have to worry about if it's going to happen or not happen. Many times we <laughs> will brainstorm and brainstorm about the best way to evangelize. And does this produce fruit or does this not produce fruit? And that's not our department. Our department is to be a minister, a servant of sharing the gospel. Do we save anybody? No, we don't save anybody. Do we rescue anybody from their sins? No, that's God's work. A servant just obeys. Who gives the increase? The Lord gives the increase. As we look at this, live in obedience if you are saved. It's a conditional sentence, which means that if you are saved, you should be obeying, but not everyone is saved. See, there are some people that could be here that aren't. The, the condition is not based on election or predestination or adoption. It's based on if you have heard and understood. If you have listened and applied it to yourself. Receiving the stewardship makes you part of the grace of God and a giver of the grace of God. We're to live in obedience to the revelation of God as a faithful servant. Or you could put a faithful prisoner. Many times, we don't like that idea of a prisoner. But a prisoner is attached in relationship to the one who's guarding them. Do you live in that way? Or are we living trying to save ourselves? You can't live a cross-centered life and save yourself. You can't live a cross-centered life and try to protect yourself and guard yourself. We're to live in obedience for the sake of others, and we're to live in obedience if we are saved. Remember I was talking about how we like authentic? We, we really treasure authentic. And I wonder, does God not treasure authentic? See, it, it, it'd be easy to hear a message and not put it into practice. To just have accumulated a bunch of information and then keep on living as we are. A bit hypocritical. What it requires is to put this into practice. To live in obedience to what God has revealed. Let's live as real Christians. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we go into this time of invitation. Father, there might be some here who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. And I pray your spirit would convict them of their sins and show them their need of a Savior and that today, today they'll, they'll get saved. Father, I pray for other of us who were saved, but we don't want to be prisoners. We don't want to be in relationship like that. We want to be free to do whatever we want, and therefore we're not serving. I pray, Father, that your spirit would convict us and show us our need to be obedient to what you have revealed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.